We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Take your copy of God's Word and find your way there. Mark chapter 5. This morning we're going to look at a large section of Scripture, at least the beginning of of it, and then we're going to finish it up next week. So it's going to be a two-part message looking at one, what we call a paragraph or a pericope, a unit. It's all stitched together by Mark. It's actually stitched together similarly by Matthew and by Luke. It's a miracle inside a miracle. It's a story inside a story. Mark chapter 5, follow along as I read this text for us just to set it in our minds. Mark 5 verse 21. When Jesus crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. So he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come. Lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus Perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman Fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. Go into peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And he entered in and said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. 
They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered into the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were, complete, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Going to the doctor and going to the dentist, going to see medical officials or medical technicians is really an exercise in so many things. One of them is an exercise in germs and microbiology. I feel so unclean when I go to the doctor. Gloves and masks, protective glasses and scrubs and gowns, not on me, but on them. <laughs> All these articles are intended to protect the doctors from germs and diseases and impurities that the patient either possesses or could possibly possess, if suggesting case kind of garment. A little background. Jesus had just left unclean Gentile territory. This whole uh, 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 scene between the last few chapters and now is just really a day. He leaves the crowd in Capernaum, goes across to the other side, meets a demon-possessed man named Legion, has full of demons, casts them out, heals him, and to thank him, the people said, would you please leave? And so he does and goes back across the lake. And you can just imagine this scene, seeing the flotilla of Jesus and these other boats coming back across the lake. This man who could heal, this man who could cast out demons, this man who's taught like no one else has ever taught. And they see him and the crowd instantly assembles and everyone focuses on him standing at the lakeside. This passage is interesting because he just left unclean Gentile territory, unclean tombs, an unclean Gentile with an unclean spirit. And when he comes back to the Jewish territory, he finds uncleanliness. We're going to find a woman who is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and then he does the unthinkable, which we won't get till till next week, where he touches a dead body which was also unclean. He wore no mask. He wore no gloves. He had no scrubs. He was utterly unintimidated and undeterred by the uncleanliness of these people that desperately needed to be cleansed by him. Add to that, Jesus is not deterred by serving two women, something that would have been hard to possess a, a, a category for in this day. Two unclean women, unclean because of a physical ailment and unclean because of death. And we're gonna watch Jesus as the great, actually I prefer to say the greatest physician have two appointments. 
Our title is Two Appointments with the Greatest Physician. Now back to doctors for a moment. It's not always an easy experience to get an appointment with a doctor. Uh, They are in high demand, and well, they should be. And once you're in the office, it's not always to be prioritized in the line. As much as I can, I have to confess, I try to get appointments with doctors as early as I can because there's less likelihood of them uh, running late. I have absolute confidence they're taking great care of all these people. And by the end of the day, it typically runs late from books I've read and rumors I've heard. This is an interesting passage. It's what um, some theologians call a Markan sandwich. Remember we talked about the Markan sandwich where Jesus starts a story, starts talking about something, talks about something else, Mark inserts something else, and then comes back to the original story. Now that happens here, but I want to confess to you, I'm not convinced this is a Markan sandwich for those of you who study at this level and who care. And the reason is both Matthew and Luke, Matthew 9 and Luke 8, record these two same appointments in the exact order with the same kind of sandwich effect. So I don't think it's a stylistic thing with Mark. He's just telling what happened. It's one unit that's going to take us two weeks to walk through because there's so much in here about our Savior. We're going to look together at three astounding encounters between, and these are important words, the compassionate, powerful Savior and desperate, confident faith. Both sides of that equation are critical to understand in, this, in this, these stories. There's the compassionate and powerful Savior, the Lord Jesus, and he meets desperate faith that has a level of confidence that's encouraging. Now, we're only going to get through the first two points, which will include, in the first point, we're going to look at the appointment for one of these, the, the, the setting up of one of these appointments. They're going to look at the first appointment that Jesus has, and we'll look at the second appointment that he has of these two next week. First, let's look, number one, at Jesus' response. Jesus responds to the faith of a loving father. Jesus responds to the faith of a loving father. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again, literally back over, so he bounces from Capernaum down to the area of the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, and then they they basically kick him out of their area. Um, He had just destroyed the, the pork industry in that area, and they asked him to leave. He goes back across the lake. A large crowd gathered around him so that he stayed by the seashore. The the English doesn't come across as forceful as the Greek. Basically, a large crowd gathered around him and he was forced not to get beyond the seashore. That's how many people were there. He was being pushed almost back into the lake after he stepped out of the boat. He's just healed this demonized man, leaving him in the tombs down in the southeastern portion of Sea of Galilee. They ask him to leave. Presumably, the large crowd that he escaped from when he left to go across the lake is the same crowd that has now reassembled as he comes across. And as I, I said a moment ago, can you imagine... This man that they had grown to be so entranced with. 
No one spoke like him. No one could do what he could do. Heal like he could heal. Cast out demons. This is a supernaturally powered man. And he left. And then we find out earlier in Mark that he had a flotilla of boats around him, not just the one he was in. He comes back across the lake and it would have taken some time when they could see him on the horizon to get to the lake where they would have told all their friends, he's coming back. He's coming back. And a massive crowd gathers. They were waiting on him. Now, Mark will inform us throughout these two stories that the crowd plays an immensely important role in these miracles. Pay attention to the crowds. We actually discover from Matthew that Jesus steps onto the shore and has an instant discussion, debate, clarification with the disciples of John the Baptist about fasting. So he jumps off. These guys want to have a theological discussion with him. And at that point, verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up on seeing him falls at his feet. Mark tells us this was a leader an official, one who was publicly recognized in the synagogue. He was an elder in the synagogue. Everyone knew who he was. They knew he was the leader in the community, probably the synagogue at Capernaum there. His name is Jairus, but we can deduce a lot more about him than just his name by just backing up and looking at the context. Remember, the local synagogue at Capernaum is likely the, what he's talking about, where he would have landed, would have been just a few hundred yards from there. These men took care of the building, these officials did. They took care of the scrolls. They took care of, of overseeing the local membership. They organized the worship services. They organized the teaching, who was gonna teach, which scroll, what the calendar was gonna be for the activities of the local assembly, the local synagogue. Again, they were local elders, now, this is interesting to me. and If you'll just read in big chunks, you'll see something. Can, can we take a quick tour? Look back at chapter 1, verse 21, and I want you to listen for a word, okay? Listen for a word. Chapter 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately upon the Sabbath, Jesus entered the, what? Synagogue. Verse 23. Just then there was a man in their, what? Synagogue. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue. Verse 39. And he went into their synagogues, all of them in the area. Chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into, he entered again into a synagogue. Now, we've already read in chapter 5, verse 22. One of the synagogue officials, our friend Jairus, verse 35, while he was speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, verse 38, came to the house of the synagogue official. 
And then chapter six, verse two, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. It's not an accident. He's showing, Mark is showing us that Jesus kept coming back and forth, magnetized to the place of worship to the synagogue. And that makes sense. The object of worship was the God of Israel. And the God of Israel in human flesh kept returning to the place where the focus of worship was directed toward him. Jairus would have been very familiar with Jesus. Remember, Jesus is spending all of this time in this synagogue and other synagogues. He would have no doubt heard him teach, likely seen his miraculous power. I think it's worth just taking a quick detour. Look over at Matthew chapter 8 for a moment. I think it's important to get a running start into Jairus' memory and into his mind. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is earlier in his ministry in, in North Galilee, came to him, imploring him. See how familiar this sounds. Saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. That happens in the same area of Capernaum that we find Jairus. You don't think he'd heard about that? He goes, the centurion, to Jesus and says, my, my servant is not with you, but if you say the word, he can be healed. This sounds almost identical to the request that Jairus makes of Jesus. I think he's asking exactly for the same thing to happen to his daughter. Go back into Mark 2 and you see the, remember the parting of the roof? They drop the paralytic down. Jesus heals that paralytic. Very strong reputation in that area that Jesus could heal those who are lepers, paralyzed. Diseases that had never been healed by anything. And he was sufficient. With all that data, Jairus comes because his little girl is lying at home. Luke tells us, by the way, she was his only daughter. He elbows his way through the crowd and this respected man in the area falls on his face in front of Jesus 
this would have alerted the attention. This would have gotten the attention of the people around. This great man that they respected now falls at the feet of Jesus, verse 23, and implored him earnestly. The Greek has the idea of he begged him with his entire depth of soul. My little daughter, my precious little girl, who we find out is 12, is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Here we see the faith of a loving father. We see the faith of Jairus. Unquestioning, confident faith that Jesus had the ability to heal his little girl who was on the front porch of eternity. The key here is seeing that Jairus' faith was desperate, but Jairus' faith was also confident. Please come. In verse 23, all the people in the Gerasene area ask him to leave, Jairus says just the opposite. Please come. Please come. Verse 24. I love this. And he went off with him. Hundreds, perhaps, if we see later the feedings of the, of the crowds that Jesus is going to, do, going to do, likely thousands of people Pressing against each other, it's like leaving the stadium after a, a Chiefs or Royals game. You're, 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 you're just around people. They're surrounding you. You're protecting your pockets for pickpocketers. You're trying to keep your kids from getting lost. It's just pressing, pressing people. Jairus elbows his way right through the middle. You can almost hear as the crowd parts, that's Jairus. That's Jairus. He has no concern for anybody. He wants to see Jesus. He needs his help. He asks him to come. Jesus goes off with him to his house. And as you might imagine, a large crowd was following him. And he says it again, pressing in on him. Touching him. Crowding him. Nudging him. Shoulder to shoulder, pressing in on the Lord. Remarkably, Jesus agrees to go to Jairus' house. I'll go. Presumably to appealing to the request to heal his daughter. I mean, just put yourself in Jairus' position for a minute. Please, my daughter, he's, his face is on the ground. He's not even looking up at Christ. He's saying, please, my daughter's dying. Will you please come and heal her? And Jesus says, let's go. Can you imagine the hope? The throng of people won't leave Jesus. They had obviously seen Jairus fall at his Lord's feet. They knew Jairus and the trauma associated with his request and story. They followed then Jesus on his way to Jairus' house. Can we just stop for a second and ask this? This desperate, confident faith. Do you believe, based on what you've seen Jesus do, in the Gospels, do you believe he has this kind of power? Do you believe he has this kind of care 
that out of the thousands surrounding him, he would isolate his attention to one person who needed him. That's the kind of savior we have. It's important to listen to Mark tell us about this massive crushing crowd. It will be critical to understand what happens next. Now, Mark, and as Matthew 9 and Luke 8, both leave this story. They, they say, well, we're going to leave this story because there's something that happens from the request of Jairus on the way to Jairus' house that arrests everyone's attention. That we, in that, we come to the second astounding encounter between the compassionate, powerful Savior and desperate, confident faith. Number two, Jesus responds to the faith of a suffering woman. Jesus responds to the faith of a suffering woman. Verse 25. He's walking. He's heading toward the house of Jairus. Everyone is looking at what's going to happen. They think they might see a miracle. And Mark says, a woman who had a severe bleeding, a hemorrhage. He's very specific. For 12 years. Stop right there. Matthew and Luke, as well as Mark, all three make note that this woman's condition had plagued her for 12 years. They're very specific with the number. I think it's fair to say everyone in the area knew she had this condition. Most scholars agree. In fact, I couldn't find any scholar who did not agree that this was certainly describing a, a menstrual condition that would have amplified her condition socially and spiritually. Why? Because Leviticus 15 declared that a woman during her monthly cycle was ceremonially unclean. Listen, ceremonially, not sinfully unclean. And we know that because she was not required to offer any kind of sacrifice for this kind of uncleanliness was not sinfully unclean, just ceremonially unclean. And the reason was, scholars would tell us, that the only blood that could be allowed in the temple was the blood of sacrifices. This woman's uncleanness was only for seven days. Then she could rejoin worship in the temple and worship in the synagogue. It was temporary. Leviticus 15.25 says, all the days that her discharge continues, she is unclean. So just during that time. She was excluded from worship, from the temple, from the synagogue. She was an outcast. And this woman was this way, not for seven days, but for 12 years In verse 26, Mark gives us more insight into her condition and her suffering. Verse 26, and she endured much, literally suffered greatly at the hands of many different physicians who attempted to heal her. And this is important. She spent all that she had to try to be healed but wasn't helped at all. But rather, instead of being helped, it got worse. By the way, I think it's interesting that Luke, who is a physician, leaves that out of his account. 
Well, I thank God for physicians. Dr. Opie, Dr. Church, Dr. Jacobson, such testimonies of Christ in their own operation as physicians. Very little medical understanding of diseases and of um, uh, conditions during this time. A lot of it was intermixed with, with superstition. For example, some people said to treat this condition in Talmud, you needed to carry around the ashes of a crushed and burned ostrich egg until it was healed. This poor woman was now poor because she had spent everything she had paying these physicians to try to heal her. I don't think Mark was intentionally trying to criticize the doctors. What he's doing is showing the contrast that they threw at this condition everything they knew and nothing worked. Now, before you throw rocks at these physicians, there are conditions that medical science cannot cure or treat in our day as well. But all of which can be treated by the God creator, the Lord Jesus. Certainly nothing wrong or sinful with going to a doctor, nothing sinful with this lady going to a doctor for her ailment. But I wonder how often, even you and I, just a little devotional aside, how often will we experience any kind of physical ailment is our first reflex to go to the medicine cabinet or to call the doctor before we pray? Praise God for antibiotics. Praise God for cough syrup. But do we reach that direction? This is convicting to me. Do we reach that, reach out for that possible solution before we stop and say, Lord, you created me. You know every single cell in my body and are infinitely able and possess unmatched care for who I am to come and minister to me. Like Jairus, she approaches Jesus based on her knowledge of him and what he had had done. The text, by the way, tells us she heard of him, likely not seeing him because she was unclean, outside the camp, unable to have normal interaction with others, and yet she sneaks into this crowd, possibly head covering over her. So she's unrecognized and not pushed out as unclean. She'd heard of Jesus. And because of her uncleanness, she certainly had not been near the synagogue where he had taught. But here in it, this is just a heart-wrenching, heart-breaking scene. This This act of faith, she does the unthinkable. After verse verse 27, hearing about Jesus, doesn't say she encountered him, which makes sense that she had been ostracized because of her uncleanliness. uncleanness. She came up in the crowd, get this, behind him. She put the sneak on. And she touched his robe. 
This was an outer garment, almost like a blanket. You had inner garments, and you had outer garments. This was what you would put on to keep warm. He had just come off of the lake, strong winds. We don't know what time it was of the year, but no doubt had, been, had his outer garment on to keep warm. And she comes up behind him. There's people pressing. There's so many people. She's counting on the fact that no one will notice what she's doing. And she sneaks behind him and just touches his, his cloak. She uses the crowd as cover and her desperate plan, she gets near enough from the rear, touches. Why? Verse 28 tells us, she thought, this is her faith. She just thought, she knew about Jesus and she thought, oh, if I could just touch his garments, if I could just touch his garments, I'll be well. Now, we'll discover in just a few verses, she was not attempting a magical, superstitious touching of his clothes. She was acting in faith in Jesus and in faith in his ability. This wasn't superstitious. This wasn't magical charms. She believed in the man, but did not want to be noticed and did not want to be alerting to her uncleanness and did not want to be a spectacle. Verse 29, Mark's favorite ever. Immediately, Instantly, the flow of her blood was dried up. This is emphatic. And she instantly felt, felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. How could she tell? How could she feel? How could she know? Well, think of the side effects of perpetual bleeding. By the way, the word for hemorrhaging doesn't mean a, a slight flow. It means severe bleeding. For 12 years, think of the constant dehydration, weakness, cramping, nausea, discomfort, and the embarrassment of taking care of the actual flow itself. She had to feel this condition overwhelmingly. And when she touches his cloak, it goes away instantly. All of the side effects evaporate. Instant healing. 12 years of pain, 12 years of discomfort, 12 years of shame and embarrassment Distance from worship and distance from family members and being kept outside the city and living in an ostracized condition. Can you imagine her feelings? Imagine her physical relief. Imagine her social, her emotional relief. Imagine her joy. Imagine her delight. I'm well. I'm healed. It's gone. <laughs> but all her excitement... And the wonder at her healing instantly changes in verse 30. Mark uses his favorite adverb again. Immediately, Jesus, I love this, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him had gone forth, he turns around, this is emphatic, in the crowd, among the crowd, with everyone listening, everyone watching, and he says, he announces, who touched my garments? 
It's loud, it's busy, it's crowded, it's chaotic. And Jesus stops and everyone's attention goes to direct silence with their eyes on him. In his immediate pause, the crowd stills, the noise stops, the murmurs cease, and Jesus asks a question. Who touched me? Who touched my, my robe? Who touched my cloak? Who touched my coat? Remember, he's being crushed by the crowd. She likely only saw his robe. There's so many people around, she, gets, she just touches it and she, she's healed. Don't miss the awareness that our Lord has to not just the power proceeding out of his, his self, but the response to faith that's behind him. Desperate, confident, genuine faith. The impossibility of the situation is not missed on the disciples. Verse 31 is almost humorous. And his disciples said to him, what? You see the crowd pressing on you and you say, who touched me? You're leaving the, 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 the Royals game and, and everyone's around you and you say, who touched me to your wife or your husband? You say, excuse me, there's thousands of people around. What do you mean, who touched you? Who bumped into me? They're basically saying, what? Jesus, you're asking who is touching you? <laughs> Everyone is touching you. Verse 32, and he looked around to see the woman who had done this. The unthinkable happens to this poor lady. Her whole plan was predicated on being anonymous. But now Jesus puts all the attention of the crowd directly on her. Let's see if she identifies herself. What will she do, run? Get out of the crowd? I love, I love verse 33. But, but the woman, fearing and trembling, from excitement and relief to fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, that Jesus had truly healed her, came and for the second time in just a few verses in the same scene, we find someone falling down before him. She's on her face at his feet. And I love this. And told him the whole truth. Imagine that. Who did this? Who touched me? He turns and looks to her. The crowd parts. She's isolated. She goes, falls at his feet and says... I came behind you. I didn't want to make any notice. I, I, I didn't even touch you. I, I, I just touched your cloak. And I'm well. I'm healed. Her response is amazing. Luke says in Luke 8, 47, I love this. When she realized she had not escaped notice, that tells us what she was trying to do. She realized, uh-oh, everyone knows me. She runs to the Savior's feet, falls and says, this is what I did, this is what happened. She not only identifies herself, but she falls down before him, tells him the whole truth and acknowledges by her position his lordship 
The truth, by the way, that Jesus already knew. She wasn't telling him anything he didn't know. What will he say? How dare you? Why didn't you ask my permission? Did you think you were going to get away with this? What would he say to her? Verse 34. He says, daughter. This incident is the only time Jesus uses this word in all the gospels. It's a term of affection and endearment. Daughter, your faith, (laughs) your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the Greek is important here. And be continually, permanently healed. The, The force of the verb says, be done with this forever. Healed of your affliction. This is the crux of the narrative. Your faith, your faith has made you well. He tells her to go, then it's for, for my, my friends who are Greek or who know Greek. He says, go ace. It's not in. Go into faith. He doesn't use the word in, epsilon nu, in faith. Go into Go into, rather, peace. Go into peace. Go into shalom. Enter into shalom. Enter into a place of peace. What does that mean? Well, we know by the next phrase. Go in peace and be sozo. Remember that word when we studied uh, Romans? Sozo. It's literally saved. It's not just saved from a physical. It's saved also from an eternal condition. Go into peace. Dwell in peace and be saved and healed of your affliction. I think there's both a spiritual and a physical healing that happens in this woman. Her faith in Christ had brought her spiritual wholeness and physical wholeness. I think this woman had been doubly delivered from the physical problem and spiritual problem that she had. He wasn't just saying goodbye, go in peace. Enter into peace and be saved from all that's afflicted you. I'm amazed by this scene. The next verse tells us that he arrives at Jairus' house, which we'll pick up next week. It's its own incredible scene. But I step back from that and say, what are the implications for me? What, are the, what does this imply for you and me? Can I just give you some things to think about? God can do what doctors cannot. God can do what doctors cannot. It doesn't mean he always does do it, but he can do what doctors cannot. That could mean granting life after death to those who have faith. God can do what doctors cannot. Praise God for doctors. I, I'm thankful for doctors. But our response to conditions, physically and spiritually, ought to be a reflex of looking to Him first. Last time you went to have a 
a treatment from your doctor. Did, did you pray for your doctor, the nurses? If you're going into surgery, all the technicians, that God would sustain the machinery? These don't have to be competing issues. You can pray for the wisdom and the skill of your doctor, whether that person, that man or woman is saved or not. But know that God is ultimately the one who raises the dead, which no doctor can do. And that's, I wish we had time, that's what's going to happen in the next story. I think a second implication that I walk from this story with is that knowing what Jesus did in the past fuels my faith in the present. Knowing what Jesus has done in the past fuels my faith in the present. Jairus and this woman who had heard of him, Jairus who had probably seen and heard him teach, knew who Jesus was in the past, which gave them, gave them faith to believe that Jesus could be sufficient for them in the present. Boy, think of you, how much more you and I have to view and to see through the eyes of faith in the pages of the Gospels what Jesus has done, who he is, what he's like a far better view than they did that should fuel our faith in the present read the gospels with eyes of faith I love this another implication Jesus cares about the seemingly insignificant I don't think it's an accident that Jesus is dealing with a very public figure in Jairus and his daughter and on his way deals with someone who is not only insignificant but unclean and outcast. There is no one beyond the reach of the Savior's care and power. No one beyond. He cares about your every problem. He cares about your every need. He cares about every cell in your body. And one day, as a believer, he will bring you to your heavenly rest where he will graduate you from this painful human condition and give us new, eternal, spiritual bodies that never experience suffering, sickness, or death. I mean, what are you worried about, really? What are we worried about? And do we bring it to Jesus in faith? The emphasis here is faith. Jairus believed Jesus could do this. This woman believed Jesus would do it, even if, even if not directly talking to him. He had the power to do this. Incredible faith. This screams of the sufficiency and care of Jesus. Which leads us, obviously, this all points to Jesus responds to requests made in faith. Jesus demonstrates that he responds to requests made in faith. James says in the middle of a trial, if we ask in faith, he will grant wisdom. This, this turns up our attention giving in, in prayer. We don't praying, pray to God about conditions just as a last resort or hoping something might happen, we come to the God who is the Lord of creation and every cell in our body and every condition we would ever encounter who has absolute power. And if I can give you just a preview, lest you think, well, he might not have power over this, what he tells us in this next story is that the great enemy of death contains less power than our Savior. 
Is your faith confident? You say, well, not as much as I wanted to believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do we trust his care? Do we trust his sufficiency? Do we believe it? Do you believe enough about Jesus to conclude that he is truly divine, God in flesh, and fast-forwarding that he, he knew that we deserved death because of our sin and said, I will take that punishment instead of them? That's what the cross is about. Do you understand that the cross was an insufficient, insufficient way of demonstrating his saving power without three days later the resurrection from the dead? That's what Paul tells us. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men to be pitied. Who believes in a dead Savior? Ours is alive. Ours is alive. If you believe in him, rejoice today that there is nothing, even death, even death, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if you don't, would you please run? Run, don't walk to who he is. Run to the cross. Run to the, the extension of salvation. He says that you can be made whole eternally even if our bodies are decaying in this world.